1: hungry for adventure?
2: Do you crave hilarious and perilous tabletop campaigns? Don't bother rolling perception, pal. We've got you covered.
1: Behold, Dungeons and Doritos. Nerdy Show's epic tabletop audio drama. A cinematic serial of mayhem-filled, morally questionable quests at (coughs) DungeonsAndDoritos.com Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology, if it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. In this episode, I'm flying solo for a special presentation. Well, kinda solo. I'll be speaking with Barry Levinson, the legendary film director behind Diner, Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Bugsy, Wag the Dog, and many others. But for the purpose of this episode, we won't be talking about any of those beloved classic films, we'll be talking about one of the most grossly overlooked movies of the 1990s, a film called Toys, which this year celebrates its 25th anniversary. Toys is one of my favorite films of all time. It's a surreal fable that's teeming with amazing visuals and incredible music while spinning an intimate family drama that predicted and warned against drone warfare. Yeah, it's a bit complicated to say the least, and that's just what's on the surface. Putting together something along the lines of a tell-all exploration of the movie and its production has been on my journalistic bucket list for ages. This is a forgotten film that deserves to be re-examined. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, don't freak out. I'll take you through it and do my best to make it interesting even without the visual components. But do look it up when you get a chance. And if you'd like to read about it instead, I do have an article about it on Consequence of Sound, which I'll link to on this episode's page. It features excerpts from this interview, but will be going much more in-depth on this podcast. In addition to diving deep into the history of the film, I'll also be sharing some of my personal stories about how toys impacted my life. Now, I'm a firm believer that nostalgia is the mind killer. Rose-colored lenses assure that I'm not seeing something in its true colors. Especially right now. Whether it's the film industry or the global political climate, nostalgia is the opiate of the masses. So, I'm saying all this to preface that I will be waxing nostalgic about the film. It has a really special place in my personal history, which I think is important in documenting its impact. If it gave me this experience, then certainly it must have done something similar for others as well. But when it comes to a critical analysis of the film, I won't go easy on it. Though, if I didn't think it was exceptional in spite of its flaws, then we wouldn't be here doing this. Anyway, on with the show. If you're coming into this totally blind, allow me to put some visuals in your head before you go imagining conventional toy iconography for this film, because that won't work. Imagine pristine, rolling hills of tall green grass and a clear blue sky like that old Windows desktop, but years before. Out in that peaceful landscape is a small black road that leads to a series of buildings that are brightly colored geometric shapes, like a castle made of wooden blocks. On a nearby hillside, overlooking it all, is a cartoony elephant sculpture creating a cloud of snow from its trunk that pours down on the buildings. Or how about this? A factory floor, where rows of cylindrical machines like baggage carousels spew out toy parts to be assembled by workers in pastel smocks. Atop the machines are huge, glossy sculptures that move, a hand that opens and closes with an eye in its palm, a robot head, and again, an elephant, but this one with a segmented animatronic trunk. Or a room painted like those aforementioned hills and sky, inside of which is another, smaller room, cut in half, a bedroom with a pod-like bed that's enclosed by a duck with nightlight eyes. Toys isn't an animated film, and it isn't for kids, But it does take place in an enchanted world of sorts. A space left of reality where you can tell a sensational story. A fairy tale that's perhaps best described as such. Once upon a time, there was a toy maker named Zevo who lived in a wondrous factory. He devoted his life to bringing whimsy to the world and keeping the joy and innocence of childhood alive in children of all ages. But when he died, he made a terrible mistake. Fearing that his son Leslie was too carefree to run a business The toy maker gave his factory to his brother, an army general. War was the only game the general knew how to play, and so he made war toys. Miniaturized, remote-controlled weapons. To save Zevo toys, and maybe even the world, Leslie must grow up and lead a revolt against his mad uncle before it's too late. Leslie Zevo is played by Robin Williams. General Leland Zevo is played by Michael Gambon. Joan Cusack plays Alsatia Zevo, Leslie's peculiar sister who wears doll clothes. LL Cool J plays Leland's son, Patrick, who's an expert in misdirection and camouflage. And Robin Wright plays Gwen, a Zevo Toys employee who gets romantically involved with Leslie and roped into all the mayhem unfolding in the factory. Toys came out December 18, 1992, amidst the hustle and bustle of last-minute Christmas shopping. You know, when malls were still beacons for holiday commerce. Bill Clinton had just been elected president, and Robin Williams' film career was on fire. I was eight years old, and Williams was just about the only Hollywood star I had any kind of must-see connection with. The prior holiday, he'd been in Hook, and this year he'd done voice work for both Ferngully and Aladdin, the latter of which had only just come out weeks before. Naturally, I wanted to see this movie starring Robin Williams with all these crazy visuals. Already being a weird, artsy kid, but not having cable, I was drawn to anything that remotely looked like a music video. Plus, you know, toys. I took the phrase collect them all to heart and would haunt KB, Toys R Us, and Lionel Playworld looking for the newest or rarest Ninja Turtle action figures and spend hours lost in the Lego space sets from the time, Imtron, Blacktron, and Space Police. From Barbie to Batman, I'd obsess over the latest commercials, and my first visit to FAO Schwartz in New York City was a defining moment of my young life. So yes, I was going to see this Robin Williams film called Toys. I guess it's easy to see why reviewers might have thought it was a kid's film. It looked like a kid's film. It starred a guy who is currently in an extremely popular kids film, but with the PG-13 rating and the actuality of the film itself, you'd think that would have clued them in that this was something more.
3: It was always considered a strange piece, <laughs> and in some ways, I guess we were a bit of ahead of our time.
1: No kidding. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then, of course, when it first came out, I think it was misunderstood because, on face value, it looks like a very innocent piece. And in a sense, it's really kind of a dark satire. But I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice because all dark satires all look dark. Strange Love is dark and, you know, has a, you know that black and white quality. So the idea of being at a toy factory in primary colors, so it all would look sweet. This was a dark satire yeah. in primary colors. And everything looks sweeter than it was. But then under it is this really dark thing that begins to emerge through the piece you know, seemed like a valid idea, not according to a number of critics. I was very happy with the film. I was obviously somewhat disappointed when it's completely not understood in its time.
1: People I talk to of my age, like in my early 30s, we've all connected with it very strongly, whereas, I mean, I I remember, you know, my parents, my uncle, all seeing this film with me and not getting it, not enjoying it. And me, I was like all about it. (laughs) (laughs)
3: You know, it's funny, the very first awareness that maybe the movie had legs was uh, in France. I was over there for some other film. I was being interviewed by different journalists, and they were all talking about toys. And I said, you saw the movie? Oh, yes, yes. It it began in France. And then I started hearing from other people, which is gratifying. But uh, you also deal with the the punches you take when it first comes out. So. You know, you make films. Sometimes they're going to be accepted in their time. Sometimes not. Sometimes they're found out to be more of a revelation later. And some other things you may do that, you know, fall by the wayside.
1: If Toys was made now, do you think that it would be so of its time that people would, you know, get it?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think because that's when people see it now, they get it. Right. Because <laughs> you know, it, is, it is a bit of a timeless piece, so the visualization of it, and certainly the production design by Nando Scarfiotti, gives it a very, very strong, specific design to it as opposed to anything that you would say, oh, yeah, it's like this.
1: In theory, 1992 should have been a good year to release Toys. That same year was Robert Semex's dark fantasy comedy, Death Becomes Her, and Tim Burton's Batman Returns. Batman Returns was a summer release, but like Toys... It also depicted a left-of-reality world during Christmas time, though at the opposite end of the color spectrum. And that's one other major factor that probably worked against toys. It wasn't just a Christmas release, it's also a Christmas movie, at least as much as Batman Returns and Die Hard are. But in this case, it was very much promoted with the holidays in mind. The film starts and ends with Christmas, with the bulk of the action taking place over the year in between. What's clever about it is it's not just this dark comedy that's a good alternative to the usual holiday fluff, but the film really utilizes the holiday as a focal point for the magic and innocence of the toy factory in its prime, celebrating joy with huggable fun for everyone. The goodness at the heart of the idea of winter holidays is critical to ushering viewers into the state of mind needed to enter the world of toys. If you remember the excitement of being a kid opening presents, the thrill of a brightly colored toy, boom, the world of the film makes sense. And now, the subversion of that pure, strange realm at the hands of the general can take full effect. Now, when the toy makers are workshopping fake vomit and the room starts closing in on them, it's a combination of not just funny and absurd, but also disturbing, as that carefree reality collapses. It's in moments like that where you'd think it would have been pretty clear to anyone watching the film that if they had expectations about it being for kids, or about it being this magical Christmas comedy, that it was in fact something entirely different. But perhaps it's not just the colorful misdirection that made Toys a flop while Death Becomes Her and Batman Returns hits. It might be that in spite of Toys having a big budget and a cast of rising stars, it's actually an art film that is more in common with Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville or the Japanese horror film House than anything ever made in America. Those probably aren't the greatest examples, but point being, if you sit down and watch an art film waiting for it to play by the same rules, pacing, structure, or even reality, As a normal Hollywood movie, you're going to leave angry and frustrated. Robin Williams did what he could on the interview circuit to brace people. He called it David Lynch Babes in Toyland and Fellini meets Fisher-Price. Unfortunately, reviewers didn't get the memo.
3: What happens sometimes when you make a movie, it's misunderstood, especially if you're kind of really going out on the edge. And sometimes they may not have the advance notices about what is being made, so they're seeing it blind and therefore they're reacting on just face value. I always thought that the issues of the piece were worthwhile in uh, telling the story about computer uh, warfare, moving things to small things. And so now you've got drones where he was saying little airplanes, but they don't cost any money. So all of those elements have now turned up and all have now come to be. But I guess it was just too ahead of its time.
1: This plus Wag the Dog, which is also the 20th anniversary this year, both of them predict some worst case scenario versions of what's happened in reality. Yeah. Like you're responsible for bringing some of that into the pop culture world, like the, you know, <laughs> uh, us confronting it, and then it happens. I mean, <laughs> what does it feel like from your end?
3: It's, you know, uh, all you really can do is you do the work that you believe in, and sometimes you could be celebrated, and sometimes you could be trashed. That's the nature of it all, you know? That's filmmaking. If you work a certain middle ground, I guess there's a safety in that, especially if you're doing genre types, because then you're working in a very specific area. But if you're outside of the bounds of that and you're kind of working sometimes in the edges of it, you're going to take a chance. But at Mm. the same time, you're motivated by ideas, ideas, stories. You're motivated by it. And you want to pursue those stories and bring it to the screen and try to share it with people. One of the most
1: intriguing things to me about Toys and its commentary on drone warfare is that it almost got made over a decade earlier. Its release in 1992 already predated the first flight of a Predator drone by two whole years, but Toys was originally going to be Barry's first film, before Diner, in 1982. In his book Levinson on Levinson, he said that he and his then-wife Valerie Curtin wrote Toys in 1978. That's a long time to have been harboring such a chillingly predictive story. I mean, now that's 40 years of precognition to where we currently are. So one of the things I was determined to find out when talking to Barry was what exactly did the film look like back in 78?
3: 78? I think it was the early 80s, wasn't it? Am I I wrong?
1: I I mean, not according to everything I've read (laughs) in the past few days.
3: It's possible it started that long ago. I mean, the genesis of it, the idea of a general coming into a toy factory that these were brothers of different extremes, the toy maker, the military man. And what happens if the military man comes into it and how would he ultimately you know, pervert that in a way that he could relate to? So the idea of model airplanes becoming military tools, downsizing these elements that could be used in battle and have power to that. And that was sort of like, the, what would happen if we played this very sort of uh, surrealistic kind of version of a toy factory and this battle of good and evil of toys just for the pure enjoyment and the toys of the military that ultimately leads to battles, warfare, etc. That was sort of like the idea in there, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a big idea for the late 70s. It's yeah. so modern. That sort of just came from that vision of what if the military toys were literal toys?
3: Yeah. It's, uh, you know It was a crazy thought, and right. uh, Valerie and I talked about it, and then we began to say, oh, why well, don't we do this? That led to the initial piece.
1: Outside of that core premise, what elements from the film that we know now were intact, and what was different in terms of like the characters and the scope of the film?
3: I think the characters pretty much stayed in place. As the 80s went on, you began to see the video games, and you'd say, okay, well, if that's where they are then... Where are they going to go in the future? So if you were blowing up cars in a video game, how would you tell the difference? What would be the difference if you're blowing up you know, buildings somewhere in the world? It'll all look the same. So if you put children in front of video games where they got great hand-eye coordination and can blow up cars and stuff, they could blow up things that are far more uh, lethal and not even know the difference because it all looks like video which is what a drone looks like. You know, it's moving along and it blows something up. It looks exactly like a video game. Now, we didn't see it then, but you can imagine it coming. And so the virtual reality helmets, what will that be like? Well, initially, it's going to be sort of silly game-like stuff, but what's its potential?
1: You mentioned that the first script centered a lot around virtual reality, and when VR bubbled up in the 90s, you sort of dialed back on that. Do you recall what part VR played in the original versions of the script?
3: I don't remember it playing any more than it is. I think we began to just see the elements that you can add to it. It's hard to remember the bits and pieces, but I think once you say, okay, well, now what happens to expand beyond that? Where's that going? Right. You know that the visual technology is going to get better, and we're going to cross the line where you can't tell the difference between virtual reality and reality. That will come to be.
1: With all these crazy ideas in play, Barry and Valerie sold the film to 20th Century Fox in 78, but the film's development froze up when Sherry Lansing became president of the company in 1980. She didn't think it was funny, and as Barry wrote in his book, you couldn't mention a movie that would conjure up the image of this film. So for the executives, there was an absence of an idea of what it might be. That made it rather dangerous. Barry's first film, Diner, was a hit, and those hits kept on coming. The Natural, Young Sherlock Holmes, Tin Men, and his fateful first pairing with Robin Williams, Good Morning Vietnam. Well, let me back up. Young Sherlock Holmes wasn't actually a hit at the time, but it's well-loved now. Anyway, after Good Morning Vietnam and its massive success, in 1987, talk started again about toys.
3: It wasn't like, hey, you can make the movie. It was like, well, we're interested in the movie, but we were in discussions about doing it. And it hadn't resolved itself, so I ended up going off to do Rain Man. And then... It still hadn't resolved itself. You know, it was like, yeah, we'd like to or not or whatever. And then I ended up going on to doing uh, Avalon.
1: What made it finally happen in the early 90s?
3: Fox finally said, yes, here's the budget we'll agree to. Everything got put in place and everyone was on board. And of course, before the movie came out, everybody that was involved in supporting it was gone. And so there you're really floundering because there's no head of production there isn't that chief executive that took it along. Yeah. So you're left like an orphan. That's always a dangerous situation.
1: When did you realize that that had happened?
3: Well, as soon as Joe Roth left, I thought we were going to be in trouble because he was the guy who was spearheading it. Mm-hmm. And so then you don't have anybody to talk to anymore. <laughs> right. There's nobody there. So there's no one that's in your corner that's gone through it and all the discussions and all of the things that lead up to the finished product. And then you're left literally rudderless.
1: Do you recall at what point in the production that was that that happened?
3: We had finished the cut. We were in post-production. Oh, wow. It literally shut down, you know, because now you don't quite have the liaison that you had with how you're going to promote it, how you're going to sell it. Everything was now dislodged. So it had no direction. Therefore the PR wasn't set up. Nothing got put in place because there was no spokesperson in terms of the continuity of where, we began and where we are and what it's about so without any of that stuff out there and laid out in a cohesive pattern because of all the shifts that took place within fox you're in a a very precarious situation
1: too many good films are killed by terrible marketing at the very least toys had incredible visuals to back it up that was the major factor that lured me in and it wasn't just the visuals from the trailers either but the posters featuring robin williams against a blue sky background in a red bowler hat with a square hole through it. In some versions, he was doubled inside the square in the hat, and on and on and on to infinity. Being eight years old, I didn't know French surrealist painter René Magritte by name, but I'd seen his work and had been fascinated by all his men in bowler hats in various unusual or obscure configurations. This poster for toys evoking that was a big draw for me. But for adults, you know, maybe needing to be told how to feel, the best the ad reps could do, was offer up the non-committal tagline, Laughter is a state of mind. Though other English-speaking countries got a better one. Make-believe, not war. Which I think is pretty rad, actually. Toy's failure to turn a profit in theaters became the narrative. And as such, even to this day, it exists in relative obscurity. But when you meet someone who knows the film, they're more often than not passionate about it. And it's easy to see why. Not only is it a poignant parable for the 21st century, But even today, with filmmaking unbound by CGI, chances are good you've never seen anything like it. For my kid self, it was a revelation. Before this point, my creative landscape was defined by the Beatles, Star Wars, and Ninja Turtles, which is an amazing batch of influences actually, but those all came to me early enough in life that there wasn't a break pumping impact of Discovery. At this point, renting Yellow Submarine from Blockbuster was just a thing that I did a lot. And I loved it, but I think at this point I kind of took it for granted. And sure, films had wowed me. Even very recently, I was awash in the ocean of existential feelings left in me by Michelle Pfeiffer's portrayal of Catwoman. But Toys was a clockwork orange-style re-education of my kid mind, pumping me full of music and artistic concepts that pinged some hitherto locked-up core of my aesthetic sensibilities in an at-the-time undefinable but unmistakably potent Eureka moment. I'd never been exposed to Italian futurist artwork before. And I wouldn't hear the name Fortunato Depero until years later. But that bold, colorful, and geometric design sense permeates the film. This fusion of his style, Magritte's simple surrealism, Soviet constructivism, all the collective visuals of toys massively impacted all my artwork going forward. Might I have discovered these influences of my own means eventually? Sure, probably. But experiencing them all at once in motion? That hit me like a steam train from a fireplace. My whole sense of seeing was changed all at once by Toys' production designer, Ferdinando Scarfiotti. That night, after leaving Gateway Cinema in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, my parents, uncle, younger brother, and I went to a now long-gone Mexican restaurant, where not only could you draw on the paper tablecloth, but even the walls. There, I drew depictions of the Toys' poster, the bowler hat with the square hole, and the sky. few movies can create visual designs and world building to the scale and complexity. And, and like even today with digital effects, with these concepts hypothetically easier to pull off, the fantasy reality that was created for toys has so much like, presence to it. There's just nothing else like it. What were your early talks with Scarafoti like building all this?
3: We had to go through various drawings and things that, you know, begin to focus it in. How do we do this? What would this look like? What's the best way to do this? You know, not many people could do what Nando can do. It's a brilliant achievement.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
3: (laughs) We began, you know, to talk about it and he would present various ideas, you know, and how do we handle something that's beyond the toy factory? What could that be? And then we kind of whittled it down to what became the design of it. The idea that toys need to come down into something if they're going to package them. So what does it look like? And so that's how we ended up those circular things that like sort of almost from the airport. You know, yeah, and then if we put a mirror on the back wall, it'll look like the factory's twice as long, and so that it looks like there'll be more terminals. And you know, what does the house look like? You know, so I would say, Well, we can't have a regular house, and he said, Absolutely, we need another thing. And then I'm not sure how it led to a pop out house that it all unfolds. But you know, look, you work with a great production designer, and you're throwing ideas out, and he's trying to make sense out of what you're talking about, and he's also going to input what he sees. And then out of that, you begin to get a cohesiveness of how you want to make the film look. The premise is we have to create another reality. We can't be in Seattle, Washington, you know, city. You know, we're not going to do that. We're existing in our own time and place. That's what we need to create. So it has no connection to the world we're in. And we thought that would all be a pretty good signal that we're not going to be doing, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, anything that uh, you might say, oh, yeah, it's like that. Yeah. We were in an alternate reality. So therefore, we can do and be as crazy as we want. You know, you never see traffic and stuff. There's like a black road in the middle of a field, the green grass and a really blue sky. Nowadays, you can make green grass and a really blue sky with clouds. Then you couldn't, you know, a black road, a green grass, blue sky, car, What is a car. <laughs> It couldn't be a Buick. It couldn't be, you know, a Ford so-and-so. Then we'll know where we are in time. So we ended up with this car, which was a month's jet that you couldn't identify, uh, an SUV that you're not sure what kind of SUV it is. And we we just tried to stay away from anything that would depict where we were in time and place as best we could.
1: I love a film that really uses its location as a character. And, you know, most people would do that just by really leaning into wherever they're shooting, but. Toys is so exceptional for leaning into the world that it created. And that's the number one thing that anyone takes away from the movie, at least at face value, is seeing something like that that you've never seen in motion before. Yeah. It's a real achievement. Like, it's something I come back to all the time when I think about my own artwork.
3: That's great. I mean, now you could do some of those things a lot easier with all the CGI, but then you had to do it all practical.
1: Yeah, and you you could, but I'm just not sure it would look as good.
3: No, I'm not sure it would either. I'm not sure it would
1: the factory those large moving sculptures that are the center points of the factory machinery those were were they all various kinds of animatronics i was never sure if they were like actually there or like were they models that had been superimposed somehow or
3: no they're all built man <laughs> you got to build a version of them and they all moved yeah.
1: like that in the in the actual scene yeah oh my yeah. gosh <laughs> that is so there crazy there was a
3: time where we were already sort of like out on the edge with it but i did say at one point when there's that song that plays when they're all there and the toys are coming down and everything else. And I said, literally, we're right on the doorstep of turning this into a musical.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) And I mean, which would have just added to the insanity. (laughs) But I always thought that it was right on the edge of a musical right in the beginning of it. And so in some ways, I think we sort of kept a bit of the musical stylization without the musical
1: Oh, I agree with that, yeah. it's very
3: close to it.
1: That's what I love so much about the film is that in all all the various components that it was so aptly wielding, the fantasy element of it is played up in so many ways that would be sort of unexpected, like having it be musically driven without being a musical. Yeah. A really important component to bring it all together.
3: Periodically, you'll see it like when Ella Cool J is with his troops and they're going up and down these little... uh, Hall with green, you know, Mm -hmm. and and they're marching, and again, you know, I mean, a musical number could come out of it. We're right on the borderline of it. When he is walking Robin with um, Robin Wright, where they're walking among the buildings, the skyscrapers, and everything else, you easily could turn that into a musical number, because it's all it's, it's all there. (laughs) <laughs> She's asking him, he's talking to that, and then they're sitting down, and then a little horse and wagon's coming with champagne bottles, and then they're drinking, you know, etc. and they're laughing. It's right on the edge of it being a musical without the music.
1: Maybe that's the answer. We'll, in 2018, take Toys to Broadway.
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've focused on the visuals of Toys a lot, but as you can tell, the music is important in equal measure. Soon after seeing the film, I got the soundtrack on cassette. I might have even asked for it for Christmas. I loved it at the time. But I didn't pay any mind to the names of the artists. And looking back, it reads like a timeline of amazing musicians who I would all, independently of being in the film, get super into. The track I wanted the album for most was called The Mirror Song. (laughs) It was like hearing the pop music I'd always wanted to hear. The music of the future, like an electronic dance song that rocked. None of the new wave I'd been exposed to sounded anything like it, and none of the music on the radio was even close. The lyrics drew me in, too. They were a total send up to the film's artistic motifs. The chorus even slurs so real into surreal. It's a fun, tongue in cheek, kind of literal art pop. And in retrospect, it's very of the early 90s in a specific way that never really caught on. A certain kind of synth pop polish that lived on the fringes of what was happening at large in the music world, but kind of got lost in favor of the simplicity of the EDM of the time and Rock's sharp pivot in a grunge. In the film, the Mirror Song was sung discordantly by Robin Williams during a sequence where Leslie and Alsatia fake a music video on a security camera to sneak into a restricted area. But in the credits, it was sung by some guy named Thomas Dolby. Years later, when I first heard She Blinded Me With Science, it was a wake-up call. I mean, not only was science a jam but I'd never thought to look up what else the Mirror Song guy had done. It seems so obvious now. I was the one who'd been blinded by a shocking lack of critical thinking. I picked up the Hyperactive compilation put out by Disky in 2000 and fell in love with Dolby's music. There were some great nerdy pop tunes, but I was surprised to find he was also a master of gorgeous, haunting music and moody narratives. Even then, though, even then, I didn't grab the Toys soundtrack and say, all right, so what else have I been missing in about a five-year expanse as my musical horizons expanded? In-
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: To high school, I connected with each of these artists independently and had that same moment of, wait, this is one of the people from the Toy soundtrack? What the heck is going on? There was Enya, who I knew and liked but also Grace Jones, Tori Amos, Wendy and Lisa, Seal, Pat Metheny, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And aside from Enya, none of these songs, or at least these versions of them, appeared anywhere outside the Toys soundtrack. And even then, these featured artists were just the surface level, because the soundtrack and the score, top to bottom, was assembled, composed, and produced by Hans, Dark Knight, Lion King, Gladiator, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dunkirk, Blade Runner 2049, Zimmer and legendary music producer Trevor Horn. If you don't know Trevor Horn, well, you probably actually know Trevor Horn. Everyone's got that experience where one day you realize that most of your favorite songs, regardless of who they're performed by, were all produced or written by one person. Trevor Horn was that for me. He's the founding member of the Buggles and Art of Noise. He took over for John Anderson on Yes's record, Drama, and went on to produce their big comeback record, 90125. You know, the one with Owner of a Lonely Heart. He also produced ABC's Lexicon of Love, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's debut record, Bell and Sebastian, Pet Shop Boys, Seal, and that's just a fraction. He's been given the nickname, The Man Who Invented the 80s, which, if we're talking about the dynamism of synthesizer pop and not the cocaine-fueled Cold War paranoia, is basically true. I mean, yeah, his sound is so indicative of that era and, like, the best of that era. Believe me, I could go on, but point being, I was actually a fan of his all my life without ever knowing it. (laughs) Then one day I realized, oh my God, he did the Toys soundtrack, and with how integral the music is to this film, he was really involved. How early in the process did you get involved with Hans Zimmer and Trevor Horn, since so much of the music was available during the filming because it pertained to sequences?
3: I don't remember the dates anymore, but it was obviously prior to shooting that we needed certain things to be in place. So all of the employees with that music playing while they're working with all the dolls coming off the conveyor belts. We already had that music or this thing sung when they're in the Christmas tree, you know, that particular song. So a lot of these things had to be done in advance of the shoot. But we had bits and pieces of things.
1: One of the most unusual things about it is like it's a great Hans Zimmer score, but then also having Trevor Horn participating, what seems like in equal measure, at the same time, this collaboration between this mega producer and this composer, and then all of these artists pulled in for the soundtrack. How did all that happen?
3: You know, I can't even remember all the details. Hans, I thought, would be perfect. Hans recommended Trevor Horn, and then they begin to build the pieces that we would need for the film, and then it would be augmented by some stuff after the fact. I don't remember the mechanics of how it all went about now, that Christmas song is actually quite nice. I actually, I heard it in a store. It was playing. I was in some store near Christmas time. And all of a sudden I said, gee, that sounds from there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that Christmas song is Closing of the Year, performed by Wendy and Lisa, with an uncredited performance by Seal. is the main theme of the film and the crown jewel of the soundtrack. It's also easily amongst the greatest modern Christmas songs. It's filled with a genuineness that embodies what the holidays purportedly mean, Not the amalgamized religious narratives, but those yuletide platitudes of family and togetherness looking forward as the year comes to a close. When Wendy and Lisa sing it, they mean it. There's a somberness there, a realism, but all of that's emphasized with love and perseverance. And if you're weary of another slow Christmas song, Closing of the Year actually still has you covered as it explodes into a veritable exaltation of wintertime beauty uh, with some suitably mysterious seal lyrics. This track has outlived the film. It's still relatively unknown, but ends up on discerning holiday playlists. It's even made the rounds being performed by opera singers and orchestras. And there's actually another stunning personnel reveal tied to this track. The album and the film's opening piece of music is Winter Reveries, an excerpt from Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 1, which bleeds into closing of the year. That piece, and possibly all of the film's orchestration, is conducted by Shirley Walker, a pioneer orchestrator and composer who paved the way for women in the world of film. If you don't know her name, you probably know her sound. She worked extensively with Danny Elfman and composed the entirety of the Batman the Animated Series and Batman Beyond scores. Even here, performing Tchaikovsky, you can hear her distinctive style. As an aside, the list of projects you know and love that she had her hand in is staggering. Definitely check out her credits on IMDb or Wikipedia and pay your respects. There is so much going on with the Toys soundtrack. There's so many incredible talents involved that there's likely as much of a story there as there is in the making of the film. And as you heard from me talking to Barry, what I really need to do is sit down with Hans Zimmer and Trevor Horn. Well, I actually tried to do just that. In fact, I made inquiries to them, as well as Robin Wright and LL Cool J, but unfortunately, none of that panned out, maybe for the 30th anniversary. What I do have in terms of musical insight to how all this came together is a piece of an interview with Trevor Horn from Sound on Sound, where he said, I had to generate all this music, and it was my first time working with film, so I sort of grabbed people that I thought would be fun, because I wasn't used to doing those sort of things. And the record does sound like a list of Trevor Horn's pals. Most everyone here is someone he's had a long working relationship with. Like, the majority of Seal's records were produced by Horn. In fact, his first record was likely produced almost simultaneously to the soundtrack's development. Grace Jones gives a wonderful performance atop one of Hans Zimmer's themes in the song Let Joy and Innocence Prevail. And Pat Metheny does the same thing, but with his guitar in an instrumental version of the song. Also, somewhere in the mix is Steve Howe from Yes, Lull Cream from Godly and Cream in 10CC, and most mysterious of all, Peter Gabriel is apparently performing something somewhere on this record. But I have no idea what or where. The internet has offered me no clarity. He's just, he's in the liner notes. I don't know. Clearly, there's still work to be done. But uh, back in 2011, I did get a little slice of the story and an insight into the experience of working with Trevor Horn when I interviewed Thomas Dolby. The first time I ever encountered your music, actually, was um, in Barry Levinson's 1992 film Toys. Uh, with the Mirror Song, uh, the film's score and soundtrack were all produced by Trevor Horn, whom you've worked alongside in the past. And your track played a pivotal part in the film. Uh, I was wondering uh, how you were approached for that project, because it strikes me as being, a, in many ways, a very like definitive Thomas Dolby-sounding track.
2: It's hard to say. I mean, you get invited to do things, and sometimes it feels like fitting a square peg into a round hole but there's a little bit of push and shove and give and take and they adapted the the script a little bit to the music as it came in and so yeah I mean I think it, it, it ended up being pretty cool in the film and um, it was actually because of working with Robin Williams on that that I got invited to do the Fern Gully thing in which Robin played the part of a deranged bat yeah. and uh, go back and look at Fern Gully actually I think what's the famous, oh Avatar I think owes an enormous amount to Fern Gully um, No doubt parts, parts of the plot that are absolutely identical Trevor Horn, you know, you just kind of want to perform for him, really. You want to come up with good ideas. You want his eyes to start to get really big behind those Joe 90 specs of his, you know. He'll sit at the back of the studio and every now and then he'll just listen to something and go, oh, that sounds great. You know, we we would have spliced it onto the middle eight section from that other song, you know. And then down the corridor, he's got another team working on a, on a dance mix. And so he plays God, really. You know, he takes these huge chunks of mixes and puts them together. And, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Trevor Horn. I, I, I'd known him for a few years, but I first worked with him on a Malcolm McLaren project, Duck Rock, which, yeah. um, you know, they went off to South Africa, and, and really they were the first people to record a great high-life band sort of out in the bush and the projects in South Africa and, and bring those tapes back. And I was lucky enough to be one of the first sort of, uh, you know, British musicians to, to overdub onto them uh, in the studio. So um, I'm full of admiration for Trevor and his, uh, his skill.
1: The biggest enigma on the soundtrack is Tori Amos. The song she sings, The Happy Worker, is the track playing in the factory that all the Zevo Toys employees are endlessly dancing to, and it sounds nothing like anything she's done before since. It's very electronic with layers of mariachi horns and male voice choirs, giving it like a a whimsical but also inexplicably oppressive vibe to Zevo Toys even before the general takes over. Her debut record as a singer-songwriter, Little Earthquakes, had just come out earlier that year. And then here she is singing someone else's song that sounds nothing like what she's promoting, though she's doing a bang-up job of it. This track was a mystery to fans of hers for a long time. And one of the few things that anyone knew about it was that it was going to be the lead single for toys instead of closing of the year but something happened and what's most often cited is that a book called tori amos collectibles says she was quote extremely unhappy with the final mix and refused to allow a planned cd single to be released considering how off-brand the song was at the time that's not unreasonable but apparently that's not the case in 2016 the podcast drive all night the songs of tori amos interviewed Trevor Horn specifically about this song, and he said the main reason for the song not being released was a UK-US record label conflict. He and Tori apparently hit it off, and all that pull-the-lever, press-the-button sexual innuendo there, apparently that was all her doing. But here's the thing, though. From this interview, the Happy Worker well runs deeper than I would have ever suspected. <laughs> Trevor Horn's longtime collaborator, Bruce Woolley co-wrote The Happy Worker and The Mirror Song, but it turns out, That Happy Worker, though it's a perfect fit for the movie, wasn't actually intended for toys. It's part of a musical about robots that they've been working on this whole time called Mirrors on the Sea. At the time of this interview, they'd gotten a script together, and they were actively trying to get it sold. He mentioned that Video Kill the Radio Star is also in the production, which makes me wonder if, since it's called Mirrors on the Sea, is the Mirror Song even though it's also a perfect fit for toys, not actually originally made for toys? I don't know, but until there's more information on the production, I mean, you can basically crack open the Trevor Horn, Bruce Woolley songbook and make all the speculation you want. I am very interested to learn more about this, and I really hope something comes of it. And as though that wasn't a crazy enough weird little story I never would have expected, it turns out Trevor Horn's first pick for the Happy Workers vocalist was David Bowie. They met up, Bowie listened to the demo, and said he didn't like it. Trevor Horn actually said he was slightly rude about it. But I'll admit, (laughs) it's an odd fit, especially for Tin Machine era Bowie. After Bowie turned it down, Atlantic Records proposed Tori Amos, who at the time was virtually unknown. Now, I haven't said nearly enough about Hans Zimmer's score. His themes are classics for a reason. But one of his greatest strengths as a composer comes from his love for experimentation. You can't always pick out a score and say, that's for sure a Hans Zimmer score. For example, the year prior to Toys, he'd done Regarding Henry, which is this beautiful electric piano score that utilizes jazz and scat elements in really unexpected ways. I'm mentioning it here mostly because it's great and no one talks about it, but also because then, you know, one year later, here comes Hans Zimmer with the Toys score Bring in Celtic influences and combining them with tropes from military scores, and then he meshes all that with Horn's production and their mutual love for spicing things up with synths. His work in Toys plays in equal measure to both the pristine expanses surrounding the factory and the general's oppressive restricted area labyrinth. Then, having those sounds reflected in all the accompanying pop tracks, it makes for a rarely seen cohesion in a film's overall musical tapestry. The track Battle Introduction beautifully reprises the theme from closing of the year into a somber but hopeful battle hymn in bagpipes. Meanwhile, the remix of Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, which is used in the climactic battle of toy against toy, brings in sounds from all across the score. It's an awesome moment in the film, it's an awesome track, and... If you're watching the film, there's even more Hans Zimmer score that didn't make it into the soundtrack release. I haven't said much yet about the cast. There's been a lot of other more complicated and less talked about angles to discuss. But it can't be overstated, this is a fantastic assemblage of talent and characters. Michael Gambon's General Zevo struggles with being a red-blooded American who inexplicably can't shake a British accent no matter how hard he tries. Joan Cusack is so endearing as Alsatia, this aloof and, spoiler alert, secretly a toy sister of Leslie's. I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but in the recent film Turbo Kid, Lawrence Lebouff's similar mechanical girl character, Apple, plays like a total homage to Cusack's performance of Alsatia. And L. Cool J, he might be the MVP of the film as the military man who's just doing his job, but with his flower print sofa camo. And decoy shoes for the bathroom stall is, in fact, just as weird as the rest of his family.
3: That was the fun of making it, you know? It was a great piece to work on. I thought Robin was terrific in it. I thought Robin Wright was wonderful, you know? Yeah. Style. LL Cool J was wonderful. The idea that they are half-brothers in something that we don't even bother to explain, you know, was part of, part of, I think, the fun of the piece.
1: People still, when I talk to people about it, L.L. being in the film, it'll be one of the first things they bring up because everyone still thinks that's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're, you're right. He, he, really, he really nailed it. There's even a featurette on the DVD where all the actors, I don't know if they're hamming it up or what, but they all sort of seem confused about what the movie's actually about. And he's the only one who really gets it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's funny. I don't think I've seen that, oddly enough. I thought he was wonderful in the movie and little attention was paid in its time. But then he got lost because the bigger issue was that the movie was so strange that <laughs> that took Chris in and everything else. I thought he was wonderful. And I thought the whole nature of that was part of the pattern of the film.
1: When you were looking to do the film in uh, 1987, just following Good Morning Vietnam, did the notion of working with Robin Williams um, reshape what you had in mind for Leslie Zivo as a character? Or was he just a perfect fit for what was on paper?
3: Well, he was a perfect fit. And then we just played around a little bit. You know, he's perfect yeah. for that you would be foolish not to continue to mine that talent and keep adding to it as best you can.
1: Before he came along, did you have anybody in mind when you were looking to do the version in the late 70s?
3: We never thought of that. It was simply, here's the world, here's the people, as opposed to when you're writing casting.
1: Well, it seems like uh, there was at least a fair amount of improv coming from Robin. How much exactly like, was there in the film?
3: I can't even guess. You know, Because <laughs> what happens is, If improv stuff works well, it's seamless to the piece, and therefore it just supports it. So in in the end of the day, your mind sort of can't remember which is which, except that seems right. Right. You know, so I'm sure we did it throughout the film, but I can't tell you the specific places. They don't jump out of me anymore.
1: And fun fact, while Barry might not have had anyone in particular in mind for Leslie, according to Levinson on Levinson, he was actually considering John Cleese for General Zivo before Michael Gambon entered the picture. Robin Williams is a joy to watch in toys, and brought a lot to the movie, including things you might not expect, like bringing in Giancarlo Giannini's sound effect suit, and even contractually mandating that Disney couldn't use him to promote Aladdin so that it wouldn't conflict with the release of toys, which actually didn't hold and turned ugly, but that's a story for another time. Williams clearly believed in this film a great deal. Unfortunately, Leslie's less of a character and more of a series of gags, like Robin Williams' public persona of a living cartoon funny man on Overdrive. Granted, that's kind of the point. His inability to grow up is why his father gives the general the factory, but we don't really see that. The factory thrives on Leslie's energy and ethos, and the general is a bad idea from day one. We're told Leslie's a flake, but his main conflict is actually making the rightly difficult decision to stage a hostile takeover on his uncle. There's plenty of well-earned laughs, but when it counts the most, the performance comes on too strong. Even in this fantasy world, he's the most unbelievable part of it. In fact, the uh, narratives in his orbit are all rather loose. Like how there's this implication that Old Man Zevo actually hired Robin Wright's character Gwen specifically to someday be a love interest for his son, unbeknownst to the both of them. Maybe the real moral of the story is to not be a control freak parent. Now, having a difficult to connect with main character is a problem for sure, and only serves to exacerbate the film's other major challenge, (laughs) which is the intense layering that I have been praising. This entire time. It's a blessing and a curse. Most everything makes sense in the world of the film, but sometimes navigating the motives and necessary details hinges on a passing line of dialogue or subtext that you can only get from multiple viewings. Toys thrives on rewatches, which is cool because it's awesome to watch, but also I can't really blame anyone who came to the theater with skewed expectations for walking out not getting it. It asks a lot of viewers. But if you're ready for that kind of experience... Then you're in for a really good time. Toys is a really layered film. Like Every time I watch it, I get something new. I think one of my favorite scenes, because it's so layered, is um, the briefing with the Washington boys. The entire setup is so surreal with them in their underwear, in the field, and getting boxed into that big aluminum container <laughs> with, with the x-rays. <laughs> and then the r- detail of the botched operation in one of the brass's chest cavities with the surgical yes. scissors. yes. <laughs> It just—it takes a disturbing scene and amplifies it so much more. Yeah. <laughs> and then on top right. of all that, the panic of seeing these these skeletons strangling each other. <laughs> I, I can't imagine someone, like, if someone was shown just that sequence and, like, them not wanting to see the rest of the movie because it's insane. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I know. It is pretty crazy. <laughs> it is, uh, that, was a fun, that was a fun sequence to put together.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, at the time, how did you do that? Because when I mean, recently watching, it, I was like, you know, the skeletons are really good. Like, they look...
3: They are. Were they motion captured? I think what we did is we shot the scene with all the physicality. And they would go in and then extract the visualization, but they have the physicality of it. So mm. therefore, they can create the bones as opposed to do it from a clean cloth. You know, they still have to extract it, but we we did all the parts of it. And then, you know, with everybody there, you'd say, okay, that, is that clear? Yeah, no, that's good. We can do that. And that's how you put it together.
1: Okay, cool. So like kind of a lot more like traditional rotoscoping for animation then.
3: In some fashion. I'm not sure exactly how it went about, but we gave all the guidelines to it. And of course, therefore, once they did it, we can intercut between one and the other if we wanted to. It's really
1: overwhelming sometimes how much is going on in a given scene or the subtext of like a a single character in that scene, so much that Toys isn't a single viewing kind of movie to really get it or even to understand necessarily all the motivations for the characters because it's all weaving together. And I've often credited that to the film bearing the weight of a 10-year-long development. I was curious about your thoughts about that and how layered it is. Do you think the film just grew more complex during the entire time it was being developed?
3: That might be true, you know, and yeah, that's possible. I can't say a hundred percent, but that's possible because it keeps evolving, and you keep adding to it, and you're layering it. you're saying, "What happens if we did this? How would we do that?" And then you know, if you could or couldn't, or what were our limitations, the evolution of time is obviously going to impact in some way.
1: The general's demented struggle to finally have his great war and pervert his brother's success into his own triumph is the film's strongest narrative. But there's always one part of the plan that I never could figure out. The sea swine. Outside of his killer toy robots, there's a special project that's housed in a pool of water. It's never clearly seen, it appears to have a mind of its own, and it's some kind of motion-sensitive, amphibious, and possibly biological weapon that ends up being Leland's doom. But what is it? Do you recall where that plot thread came from? Because it seems, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily not in Leland's wheelhouse, but it seems so disparate from everything else about his project.
3: You know, it's just an added uh, element. That's the way he was beginning to think. So that was part of his strategy of building for the future. Why have a normal submarine? Why why have just a baby submarine? You would create weaponry that would look like fish life, mammals, so that it would be harder to detect as opposed to submarines that look like submarines and that type of thing. That's where he was reaching. You know, so you say, OK, we have this boat about artificial intelligence that can basically be programmed to do what it's going to do and do it on its own. It doesn't even look like a piece of military equipment. So the disguise of it would be very effective and its military prowess would be quite devastating. Who's going to pay attention to some sea serpent?
1: Oh, geez. You OK. I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's so strange because I mean, that's so different from everything else that Leland was doing, I mean, which is pretty clear in the film. It, you know, it seems like kind of biological, but also robotic, kind of with the little Terminator heads-up display.
3: I mean, what he was working towards is you can end up with a thing that has a brain of its own and has a certain amount of intelligence to know what it's supposed to go after.
1: I suppose in the predictive map of toys, since it predated drones by a couple years, even more when it comes to like full force deployment of, of drone warfare, do you think that um, biomechanical engineering is, is
3: also a component of future warfare? Absolutely. It exists, so therefore it will be. Mm. You're not going to suddenly go, "Oh yeah, yeah." No, I don't think we'll do that. They will. I mean, look, I just saw a thing the other day that said that um, they're having toy tanks now, little things that can, you oh, know, Christ, <laughs> they can drop and they can wander around and they can do all this damage as a small little piece with you know whatever kind of firepower they're bringing to it.
1: Man, that's uh... a <laughs> I had not heard the tiny tank thing. Unfortunately, yeah. I bet it doesn't have a, a cute little face on it, but not that that would make it no. any better. But <laughs> What Barry's talking about there are the real-world evolutions of the Tommy tanks from the film. Just as the hurly-burly helicopters begat UAVs, there's an increased focus now in remote-operated tanks coming from both Russia and the U.S. Various versions of concepts like this have been in production and even in limited deployment for the past decade. But as the years go on, they're getting increasingly closer to what was in the film. Those weren't the only RC weapons that the general had either. There was also the lethal bouncing ball and the chain gun baby. And they might be too crazy to exist literally, but in its early days, Sphero, the company responsible for the Star Wars BB-8 toys, was constantly pushing back offers from the military to buy into their RC tech. The military wanted to have a sphere robot in combat zones. In theory, it'd be used to check for landmines, but the applications beyond that are clear, and fortunately for us, Sphero refused the call for their toy tech to be used in military applications. Though, they did parody the notion in an April Fool's video with a joke product called Sphero Peacekeeper, which showed a massive orb taking down a jogger, being played with by lions, and uh, ruining a birthday party. Backing up to the sea swine, Barry's description was a bit of a surprise for me. It was all there in the film, but not plainly stated, enough that I was never really certain of what it actually represented. When Barry explained it to me, it immediately reminded me of something else. Metal Gear Solid 4 and the unmanned autonomous fighting vehicles called Geckos. Their large bipedal partially biological AI-operated turrets, not meant to disguise themselves, but representing a practical marriage of not just biological design but biological components on the battlefield, venting lactic acid like a waste release when it builds up too much of it in its muscles and making cow-like sounds. Like toys, Metal Gear Solid is a fantasy world of a kind, but it's also been startlingly predictive. The series creator Hideo Kojima has a Tom Clancy-like perception of global politics and military technology. For example, Metal Gear Solid 2, which was released in November 2001, featured drones in action before similar reconnaissance models were being used in the Iraq War. I'd actually written a paper in college about pop culture predictions for future warfare using both toys and Metal Gear as major points of reference against real-world tech never connecting the sea swine comparison. There were enough comparisons already. And disturbingly, 10 years after I wrote that paper, there's even more. All pointing to the future that both stories warned against, an economy of endless war. That is a whole other story, and not necessarily the note that I want to end on, save to say that Toys is a film that is more relevant today than ever. It's not without its flaws, but in spite of them, or maybe even including them, it's a masterpiece an incredible culmination of creative talents into one singular film that's a great many things. It's a testament to how creating something new and championing challenging ideas can positively affect the world, even when it doesn't appear to pay off right away. And especially now, with our culture starved for new fables to light the way in spite of all the darkness that surrounds us, Toys offers hope that so long as good people don't sit idly by in the face of tyranny and greed, joy and innocence can prevail. Thank you so, so much for indulging me on this very different episode. If you enjoyed this and you're new to Nerdy Show, we have a lot of great in-depth interviews. You might want to check out our Greatest Hits page on our website where you'll find all of our big interviews, including what's maybe the most similar episode to this one, The Oral History of Video Games, where we interviewed tons of guests from Weird Al Yankovic to X-Files creator Chris Carter about their first video game experiences. This episode was the culmination of a ton of work parsed out over literal years, and if you enjoyed it, please consider rating and reviewing Nerdy Show on iTunes or Podchaser. Podchaser is an awesome new platform built for podcast discovery, and if you want to go the extra mile, you can actually rate and review this specific episode, not just the series. All our work here on the Nerdy Show Network is listener-supported. You can give us a one-time donation at nerdyshow.com support, or you can shop via our Amazon affiliate links at nerdyshow.com slash Amazon, where anything you buy gives back to us. But the best way to support is by subscribing to us on Patreon. Even a dollar a month helps, and we have a ton of bonus content and special perks for joining us there at patreon.com slash nerdyshow. This probably isn't the last you'll hear from me on the subject of toys. Heck, I'd write a book if there was a market for it. And uh, if you have any more info on the movie, hit me up at capblackard on Twitter or cap at nerdyshow.com if you've never seen the film before and check it out after listening to this, please let me know what you think. Same goes for any of you who give it another chance. Or if you've loved it all along and it impacted you as much as it did me, I want to hear about it. Seriously, thank you again so much for listening. I hope whatever you celebrate, even if it's your right to not celebrate anything, you've got the chance to decompress with family and or friends and find some much-needed solace at the closing of the year.